UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And as always, a very warm welcome to Life Issues. Now, have you ever noticed how doubt gets a bit of a bad press in Christianity? It's always seen as a negative thing, often portrayed as a dangerous thing. It is the destroyer of confidence, the underminer of faith, the beguiling serpent that withdraws from the path of obedience to hanker for Egypt rather than the promised land. It was doubt that caused the disciples to fear in the storm, Peter to sink rather than walk on the water, and Thomas to give voice to the struggle of man's heart throughout history. Unless I see, I will not believe. But what if, even though we are exhorted to faith and faith is praised and faith is the positive path, what if doubt is not always the evil pitfall? but is sometimes the compost from which green shoots of faith can spring? What if it is the medium that can inspire deeper understanding? What if it is the fire that can refine our notions to reveal truth and justice and freedom in God? What if the danger is not that we doubt, but that we deny doubt, pretend that it doesn't exist, and so do not handle it well. What if that is the real issue and the real pitfall? My guest to explore this today is Brian McLaren, author of, amongst many other books, a book called Faith After Doubt. It's published by our friends at Hodder. And Brian, do you think doubt gets a bit of a bad press? Well, Paul, I could not have said it better than you just uh, stated it in the introduction. Yeah, I do think it gets a bad press. Uh, I think it helps to start by saying there's there's two different kinds of doubt. There's where, where we might have doubt in a person, um, but then there's also where we might have doubt in a proposition. And I think for all of us who are committed to Christ, we, we aren't talking about doubting Jesus as a person, and we aren't t- talking about doubting God and our trust for God, although that happens, and we have to be honest about it when it happens. But what's, what so many Christians are struggling with is that they have questions and doubts about propositions that have been uh, offered to them, and uh, they're afraid to talk about it. And just as you said, when people have to pretend that they believe things they, don't, they aren't so sure about, uh, just to avoid being rejected or criticized, that creates a kind of hypocrisy. It undermines our integrity as people of faith. And so um, that's why I think it's important for us to, uh, to, to take doubt out of the closet, to be able to admit it, and to be able to talk openly and freely about it. Because I suppose as much as anything, if, we, if I have doubts about things and then I'm made to feel guilty or a failure or somehow unspiritual because of my doubts, I suppress them. All that does is create a cycle of more and more doubt, doesn't it? I think so. And and what becomes especially dangerous is when I start to realize that I'm pretending in one area, it becomes easier for me to pretend in other areas. And, and then I start to think of my Christian fellowship as a place where we all pretend. And, and you know, that's, that's not pleasing, I'm sure, to God, and it's not healthy for us. Mm. 
One of the things that you do, and as I said, the book is called Faith After Doubt, Why Your Belief Stopped Working and What to Do About It. Written by Brian McLaren, my guest today, and published by Hodder. One of the things you do right at the beginning is to say, everyone experiences doubt. Now, I've been knocking around the church for a long time, Brian, and I think that would be quite a radical proposal in most churches. Yes, I, I, although I'll tell you, uh, both before writing this book and since it came out, I just have so many people coming and saying to me, thank you for just bringing this out into the light, because so many of us have, have had deep questions and doubts, and we have been afraid, uh, afraid to, to state them. So I think it's true. Now, look, at, on any given day, people might have deep, deep certainty about anything, um, but then circumstances change, experiences change, new evidence comes out. And then they say that thing that I was so absolutely sure about that I had not even one tiny doubt about. Now I wonder, maybe that's not the best way to think about it. So this happens to all of us. It's a sign that our minds are open, that we're thinking, that we have curiosity and that we're honest. And that perhaps it's even a healthy thing. Well, you know, I have come to believe, Paul, that doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is the enemy of authoritarianism. Because there are certain leaders, of course, you from your side of the pond have been watching what's happening politically on my side of the pond. But there are certain kinds of political leaders who always use a phrase like, believe me, believe me. And what you find out is that many of the people who lie most freely and readily are the ones who are always telling you to believe them. <laughs> and, and, and of course, what they're doing is playing on people's confidence. And another name for this is con artist. And, and unfortunately, there are many con artists even in the world of religion. And, and sometimes people slip into this without realizing it. Pastors uh, are, are tired and they're weary and so they just tell people to believe what I say, and they maybe say it with a loud voice, and in that way, try to just squash dissent. Yeah. Oh, we've all banged the pulpit on occasion, Brian, haven't we? Let, <laughs> exactly let's, right. Let's be exactly honest. right. So, so the, the premise that you're putting forward is, is what about how we handle doubt? It's not that doubt itself is necessarily a bad thing, and we'll explore that a little bit more in a moment, but it is the, it is the way that we we deal with it. It's the culture yes. that we create around it that can be harmful. Yes. yes. You know, one way to say it is, are we cultivating a deep love for truth wherever truth leads? Uh, and uh, this seems to me to be the, the great challenge because all of us are susceptible to believing what we wish were true. Um, and, uh, and because of that susceptibility, the word for it is bias, because of our proclivity to bias we can live in a fantasy land, or we can be susceptible to conspiracy theories, um, or we can just remain uh, blissfully ignorant. So, for, for example, let's just be honest, uh, 500 years ago, 600 years ago, 100% of Christians virtually believed that the earth was in the center of the universe, and the sun and the planets and the stars all rotated around the earth. Well, it took a brave person like Copernicus and a brave person like Galileo and a brave person like Bruno in Italy to have the courage to say, we think we were wrong. It's time for us to change our view. 
And when they did that, there were no shortage of uh, church leaders who were quoting Bible verses at them and telling them, you will go to hell, we will put you in prison if you keep saying this sort of thing. But they were committed to the truth, and they believed that all truth is God's truth. And so that that kept them going forward. Of course, a commitment to the idea of truth can sometimes be sort of an echo chamber of self-deception, can't it? How do it, we avoid really that? Can. Well, this is a question that's kept the philosophers awake at night for, uh, for millennia, I think. Um, but I, I, it's so interesting that in the Bible, one of the virtues that's upheld more than any other is the virtue of humility. Um, the ability to say, I may be wrong. And then the humility to say, I was wrong, or I am wrong. And then an even more powerful or equally powerful humility to say, I don't know, or I'm not sure, or I'm rethinking that. Now, when those are honest statements, uh, it, it's so important that we say them. Um, and so that virtue of humility becomes important. So interesting that in the Proverbs, for example, again and again, we're told how humility is the, is the starting point. And when you add to humility the desire for wisdom and knowledge and understanding, this makes you curious rather than closed-minded. One of the things that I've noticed on my personal journey, and I turned 60 this year, so I've got a, a couple of years under my belt. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed is as I have grown and as my life has changed, my perspectives and understandings have altered. The core things, the yes. fundamental truths are, of my faith remain the same. But those, those, as you say, those propositions around it, they do change. My understanding of them does change. I wonder why it is that God allowed me that journey rather than putting me right, right at the beginning. Yes, yes. Well, this is part of, uh, this is, I guess, part of what, what we're coming to understand. It, it's something we need to doubt. We need to doubt the idea that we're puppets on a string and God is controlling us. And, and we need to uh, be willing to question that, even though it's very comforting to some people. Uh, and even though I think you could select some Bible verses and ignore some other Bible verses to convince yourself that's true. But no, it appears that God, uh, the way God has set the universe up is that our experience is real and our growth is real and our choices are real. This isn't just a this isn't just a game or this isn't a movie that God has already filmed and solved all the problems, but that we're invited to join God uh, as as co-creators, as significant uh, players in this story. And that involves growing and learning. So interesting that the Gospel of Luke tells us that even Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and man. So if Jesus grew, um, then I don't think we should ex expect to get a shortcut around growth. That's quite a responsibility on us, though, isn't it? Because I, I think you're right. I think that there are times, and there certainly have been times in my life, where I simply wanted to abdicate all responsibility and go, it's all on God's decision-making. For me yes. to be, even at my very worst moments, my most doubting moments, actually a player who has a speaking part, that, yes. that's something to think through a bit, isn't it? Well, I, I remember as a boy, I would always forget to do my homework on over the weekend. And I would pray on Sunday night, help me get an A on the test, help me get an A on the test. <laughs> and, and, you know, you, you realize that if God were to answer prayers like that, in a sense, God would be a co-conspirator in making us irresponsible. 
And what you, when we realize God actually wants us to become mature and beautiful human beings, well-rounded, courageous people of actual character, God doesn't want to be our, our accomplice in cheating our way through life. <laughs> so what about the damage that this does then? Because we, we alluded to it earlier on, and, and you, again, towards the beginning of the book, you're very clear that the sort of dishonesty that the, the is created when we deny the presence of or the reality of doubt or even deny the importance of doubt as as a process of thought and development the dishonesty that that creates you say does spiritual damage it is spiritually harmful what do you mean by that well one one example that is sadly all too common is when we see pastors christian leaders um, suddenly have uh, uh, it, it comes out that they're that they haven't that they aren't in private what they seem to be in public yeah and and what we realize is they had issues they had problems and I, i'm not one to jump on people and condemn them and throw them under the bus but we realize they had problems and they were keeping up a front and and when you keep up a front over a long enough period of time the collapse is is so much greater um, it's it's like a, a married couple who they're having serious problems, but they're too proud to go get counseling. And then by the time they go to get counseling, the problems have gotten so much worse. Or, or a person with a medical condition who's too proud to go to the doctor and say, I need help. And then by the time you go, the condition is so much worse. And I think this happens with with doubt and with questions. And 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 again, I'm not criticizing anyone for for uh, being afraid to speak out about their doubts. I suppose my greater uh, challenge is to faith communities that they work harder to not create an environment where people are so afraid. Mm. Because I think this is true. I, I know I felt it. I remember being a teenage boy and I was very interested in science and uh, I thought evolution made a lot of sense. And the church I went to, it was that was a cardinal sin. Darwin was of the devil. And, uh, and I remember there was nobody I could talk to. And I remember in private thinking, well, I can't ever tell anybody this, but this is going to be my little secret, right? Um, if I had been honest, there was not, not a chance that anyone would have had an open mind um, because they were all afraid of the other people. Mm. That kind of climate of fear doesn't seem like uh, it, it's a place where the spirit of the Lord is at work. No, but it is understandable when it happens. It is it? understandable, because, yes. You know, there is nothing worse than being delivered into the hands of God's people for judgment, is there? You know, we, <laughs> we, if you've been in, and it doesn't really matter whereabouts in the world you go to church, everybody knows that. And it's because our own insecurities and uncertainties. We, we, we don't want to admit them, so we condemn you if you admit yours. It's so true. And, you know, I think it's important to say this is a problem deep-seated in Christian communities, but it's a human problem. I, I think of a rabbi friend of mine, wonderful rabbi, and she be, there, there was a, a bombing of Gaza some years ago where a number of Palestinian children were killed by the Israeli government. And she wrote an op-ed where she said, as a Jew, I lament the death of a Palestinian child just as I lament the death of an Israeli child. Yeah, yeah. Now, that was a statement that I think she was being a good rabbi and a faithful Jew to say. 
but she started receiving death threats from her fellow Jews. That was something you weren't allowed to say. Yeah, yeah. That was an issue you weren't allowed to raise. And I have Muslim friends who have versions of this story they can tell. And you know what? Atheists find out there are things they're not allowed to say in atheist settings. So this is a human problem that I would hope our understanding of God's grace and our understanding of God's wisdom would allow us to make some progress on. And one of the things, again, that you make clear in the book, the book is called, let me remind you, Faith After Doubt. It is published by Hodder and it is written by Brian McLaren. If you want to find out more about Brian, you can go to his website, which is brianmclaren.net. But again, the, the point that you make is that while doubt may come as a result of a painful experience of loss and loneliness and identity crisis and all those sorts of things can stir up doubt it can also be a process of growth and an expression of love now let's explore that idea and if we can flip them around how on yes. earth can doubt be an expression of love brian so let's take the sermon on the mount uh, Jesus comes along and says, um, uh, he says, you have heard it said, and then he adds the word, but. Uh, and so what he is, what he's basically doing is he's saying, I know this is common knowledge. I know this is what everybody always says, but I'm here to challenge it. I want to raise doubts about what you've already heard. I think when we hear him say, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Whoever has eyes to see, let him see. He's telling us, I'm asking you to give these things a second hearing, a second thought. Um, don't just go on autopilot. And then he starts making statements uh, that, that just shake things and take them to a deeper level. And then he, he gets farther in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, look, if you want to be perfect the way God is perfect, then you will love everyone, even your enemies. So it seems to me what Jesus is doing is he's showing us something that was there in the scriptures all along. He's saying that law is a good starting point, but we go from law to wisdom. Well, wisdom is a good place to be, but we go from wisdom to justice. Justice is a good place to be, but we go from justice to love, and that everything is bringing us toward love. My goodness, when you start to see that, the Bible just, you, you see that it, it's like this, well, as Paul says, it's a schoolmaster bringing us to faith that expresses itself in love. And that journey, that experience, that depth of, of enlightenment, it, it, what does that do to our expression of faith to the world around us? Yes, well, this is one of, one of the problems we face. When we, when we stay, I don't mean to be this, say this in any way of a dismissive level. For example, there's nothing wrong in being in, there's nothing wrong with being in primary school. But if our faith stays at a primary school level and we continue to grow, um, our peers look at us and say, you seem like such an adult in every other part of your life, but in this area, you seem to have not have had any new thinking since you were eight years old. Um, and, and so it seems to me, it, it, ideally, I think we would hope that people who are representing the, the creator of the universe would be people who manifest greater wisdom, not uh, less thoughtfulness. And, and so that seems to me to be the opportunity. If we're willing to challenge, to, to say, you have heard it said, but uh, just as Jesus did, that would allow us to keep moving forward into mm. bigger and more expansive and uh, 
uh, and dip, deep and rich uh, dimensions of faith and understanding. You're listening to UCB Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond. My guest this week is Brian McLaren. BrianMcLaren.net is his website. His book is called Faith After Doubt. It suggests that perhaps doubt, rather than being the negative thing it's often portrayed at in faith, is something that can build, can deepen, can enrich our faith and our experience of God. And one of the key things that in your book is that you, you almost lay out a, a journey for life you lay out sort of the stages of life you talk about life being a thing that should move from simplicity to complexity to perplexity i love that and then to harmony and you talk about how doubt can actually help move us forward let's start by just unpicking those four areas and and i I think we're maybe harkening back to what you said before about the importance for us to show that we can grow Yes. Well, of course, we find this in the scriptures. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. I spoke like a child. When I became an adult, I, I put away those things. I moved on. And um, so we see the, this idea of stages in, in scripture. And there have been dozens of theorists through the centuries, and especially in recent centuries, uh, both theologically and just in terms of human psychology and human development, who have tried to describe the stages we go through. And um, so I I studied uh, uh, many of these uh, scholars and theorists and tried to, uh, in some ways, combine and synthesize what they were saying into these four simple stages. Simplicity, a stage of dualism, where we learn the binaries. We put things in two categories, right, wrong, safe, dangerous, friend, enemy, familiar, strange, beautiful, ugly. And that's I think we can see that is not only necessary, that kind of necessary baseline, it's a matter of survival. We have to teach a child it is safe to play in the, in the field, but it's not safe to play out in the street. Uh, so that's very, very important. Unfortunately, though, a lot of our religious communities act as if that's as far as we ever go. Yeah. And, and they stay in that level of simplicity. But many people, by the time they're teenagers or in their 20s, especially I think if they go off to university, they're thrust beyond simplicity into complexity, stage two, where we realize, oh, though my community ha- has this set of rules and this set of, of dualisms. Um, but I have a friend who I just met and his family comes from another tradition and they have another set. I have to learn that different people operate by different sets of rules and I've got to navigate this somehow. And that brings us into that stage of complexity. It's very pragmatic. How do I, how do I negotiate getting along with people in all of these different ways? Many of us, I think, get to that stage, and that's kind of where we stay. I think more and more churches have been, have been growing over my, in my lifetime into that stage two zone. Mm. Um, uh, if, if you want to compare it to parts of Scripture, stage one is like the law, and stage two maybe is like the wisdom literature. Um, And then I think uh, more and more of us at a younger and younger age are being thrust even out of stage two. And that's where we look at at in in perplexity. We become perplexed. We realize a lot of those rules that I learned as a child are hurting people. And in fact, some of them have hurt me. And a lot of those easy steps to success that I mastered in stage two, they helped me succeed, but maybe not in the most important thing in life. And we start having deep questions about the justice of what we 
we've been part of. I know this happened for me when as a Christian of European descent in the United States, I had always been taught how Christians boldly opposed slavery. Mm. But then I learned, no, it was Christians who were defending slavery and a tiny minority of them had the courage to defy it. And then you think, why did my uh, teachers lie to me and hide this truth from me? Stage three is where we have to deal with those great difficulties. And, and in, in some ways, it's the period of deepest doubt. And many people stay there and they lose their faith and they just say, Christianity has nothing to offer me because they've never been in a place where it's even safe to raise those questions. But then I think more and more people are moving into this fourth stage that I call harmony, where we say, you know, there was value in stage one, but it didn't have everything. And there was value in stage two, but it was just a stage. And there was great value in stage three. Now, how can I be loving toward people in all of those stages? And how can I, in a sense, create an embrace wide enough uh, to help me live with the kind of love that Jesus taught as being primary? How can I live with that kind of love in the world? And I suppose stage three, that where you are questioning and you're wondering yes. and you're challenging the, the things that you've been taught or the things you've been brought up to believe or the, the norms that perhaps you, even your society puts onto you. Well, that stage would be the stage where doubt would be the strongest. But it does seem as though doubt plays and, and the correct handling of doubt plays yes. a key part in being the the loam from which the, the next stage can grow. Exactly right. I, I couldn't say it better. If you think of it this way, in simplicity, I would stay with that framework that every issue can be solved by a rule unless I came across some issues that couldn't be solved by a rule. And so it, what happens then is I'm not just doubting this or that particular rule. Um, I'm doubting that whole way of approaching life based on rules alone. And then I think, oh, there's this thing called wisdom, and, and you need some skill to navigate these things. Now I want to learn those skills, and they're complex, and now I want to learn more information. It's complex, and that works for me. And then you get to a place where you think, it's not just learning more and more information. I'm starting to have doubts about this idea that more information will solve my problem. Mm. And then I think, I have to go back and scrutinize some things I already believe and I already have been taught and I already am sure of. And so doubt plays a role in bringing us into perplexity. And I even think that doubt plays a role in bringing us beyond perplexity. And one way I say it is when you become suspicious of your suspicion yes. and cynical about your cynicism, yes. then you have the potential, I think, You'll doubt your doubt as a way to move into another stage. And I suppose, ultimately, we come to the point where we doubt our ability to answer our doubt, even about yes. our doubt. Um, and so we are forced then to, to look for a higher authority that can actually impart that harmony to us. Yes, and, and this to me is, is such a beautiful and delicate shift. I telling the book a story for, for myself. I was a pastor grappling with these deep. I was deep in stage three. And, and I, I, back in those days, I, I didn't know anybody who was even in stage three. Uh, and I, I, I would, on my day off, I would go take these long walks and just ponder all of this. And, and I remember one day as I was walking, I remembered a verse I'd been taught as a child, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And as I walked, I thought, that includes my own understanding of God and the Bible and the yes. theology. And I thought at that moment, 
can I trust God beyond my understanding of God? And I, I don't know if that makes sense if I'm communicating it, but all I can tell you is I felt at that moment, I'm about to have faith in a way I've never had faith. Um, I, I'm about to, to trust God beyond just my ideas that other people taught me about God. And that to me is a powerful, it, it's a, it felt like a wonderful gift in my life, even though it was a little bit scary. <laughs> You're listening to UCB Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond speaking to Brian McLaren. BrianMcLaren.net is his website. His book, published by Hodder, is called Faith After Doubt. And the role of doubt in helping us to grow and helping us to explore our faith and helping us to communicate our faith to those around us and to help us find that place in God where we are trusting him rather than our own understanding is the subject that we are discussing how do we deal with that then, Brian, in moving forward? I mean, initially, for church leaders, what should we be doing to create a healthy environment for doubt to be expressed in our churches? In my 24 years of being a pastor, Paul, one of the moments that helped me redefine what I thought it meant to be a leader was when I realized that I could keep trying to be a model of perfection, which I always failed at, or I could give up on that goal and say, I would like to be a model of growth. Um, and when you're a model of, when you're trying to be a model of perfection, you don't want to admit your questions and your yeah. doubts and your failures and your faults and your unknowing. But when you're a model of growth, then you can be honest and you can report about your own growth. You're not, you're not trying to be the great expert who has all the answers. You're just trying to be the person who's a few steps ahead, who is reporting back. I, you know, I love hiking. And very often when you're hiking, um, you say to the peaceful, if you're in front, you say, hey, there's some, uh, you know, there's some slippery rocks right behind me. Watch out for them. It's that kind of leadership. Um, and I remember having a few leaders early on in my life who modeled this for me so beautifully. I remember one pastor one day came into a group to a group of leaders uh, in, in the congregation. And he said, I'm doing terribly today. He said, my wife and I had a huge argument last night, the biggest argument of our marriage. And he said, I just hardly feel like I can pray. I'm so, I'm just so upset. I hardly slept last night. So can somebody else pick up the ball for me today? And all I can tell you is that moment, I felt I was given a, a phenomenal gift. The leader in a sense, took off the mask and was honest about himself. If we would just tell stories about periods of deep doubt in our own lives, it would give other people permission to tell their stories. And even more powerful, if we would be willing to talk about things now that we're rethinking and that we're questioning. Uh, some people might not like this, but there are going to be people there who realize if he's still growing, if she's still growing, then that gives me permission to do the same. And I suppose to not necessarily wait until we have the answers before we talk about it, because it's very easy to tell the story when we know what the conclusion was. We know what the final <laughs> yes. chapter was. We know it all lived happily ever after in the end. Ask an easy story to tell, even if the journey That's was tough. exactly right. To tell it while you're journeying it, very different. I tell a story in the book. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I... 
I was at a dinner and I happened to be placed at this dinner next to a very famous author. And of course, at that time, I had no idea I would become an author and authors are just normal people. So I held this fellow in awe, <laughs> right? And I'm sure looking back that I must have been trying to impress him with how much I knew and how much I read and so on. And I, he was probably, I don't know, he was probably in his 50s at the time. And he said something like this to me. He said, I knew a lot more when I was your age than I know now. <laughs> And I think it was a very gentle way for him to tell me, stop trying to impress me, you know, but it was also, it disturbed me because I thought, hold it, the older you are, the more you should know. And he was giving me a phenomenal gift to say, as you were saying before, we have all of, we have this whole system. We're sure of every little detail. And as we get older, sometimes we say, you know, I'm not so sure about that anymore, but I'm more sure than ever about this. Mm. And that, that process, instead of being uh, a process of, of, uh, of backsliding is actually a process of deep wisdom. And for those of us who are church leaders, and I suppose as well, just for all of us within the community of church, do we need to be actively creating a safe space where people can express that? Do we, I mean, I don't know that necessarily we would go, and this Sunday we're all going to talk about our doubts, but do we need to be creating a space where people are given permission, I suppose, to express those things, to create a community? I think you call it in the book a community of harmony. Yes. Well, I, I wish I could say yes, Paul, but here's the truth. Um, in some churches, if they were to create an environment like that, it would maybe be nice for a night or two or a week or two, a month or two. But the, the congregation is structured with a kind of unwritten contract. And that unwritten contract is that our unity depends upon agreement to a list of statements. And, and so if someone were to question those statements and not come around to the conclusion that everybody already had, they would no longer be welcome there. Um, so to me, that's, your question is, uh, is an important one that we, we would have to be willing to, to make some changes as a congregation as we went forward. How much are we willing to tolerate in terms of diversity in our congregation? Mm. And if we are willing to tolerate more diversity on opinions on various matters, I suspect that it's going to mean we're going to have to intensify our clarity on the things that really, really matter to us. And that, to me, would be a wonderful process for a congregation to go through. Um, I, I, I think of an example. I, I grew up in a tradition where we had very rigid doctrinal statements. And I, I remember saying to someone in my tradition, it's sort of sad that if C.S. Lewis were here, he couldn't be a member of our church. Um, uh, in some places you'd say, uh, you know, John Stott couldn't yeah, yeah, have been a member yeah. of our church because we, we don't have a wide enough embrace that we would even have room yeah, for someone yeah, who we all respect. Yeah, so yeah. this might be an opportunity for a group, for a church to find there's something we can be united around other than a, a, a list of propositions that people uh, have to affirm. And if they don't, they are out. There is, both in your country and where I am, there is an awareness that an awful lot of people are finding it harder and harder to connect with established patterns of church. Yes. A lot of people are leaving. A lot of people are seeing the church as irrelevant and as by inference, seeing Christian faith as irrelevant to their everyday yes. lives. 
Do you think this is actually part of the key to, if not reversing that flow, at least creating an opportunity to staunch it a bit? I'm so glad you asked that. Absolutely, I do. And I think it happens on a number of levels. But as I wrote this book, you know, a little verse in the book of Galatians just rose in importance in my mind. It's a verse that had always been there, but I hardly noticed it. It's where Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Now, we have to remember that was a big deal in Mm -hmm. his religious tradition. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And I... I am of the belief, I'm of the, I have the conviction that that really is the point, that we learn to have a faith that expresses itself in love. Um, and if more and more of our congregations became places that actually made that the priority, um, it would involve us being willing to say that this or that, these issues we've argued about, these binary issues don't mean anything. That's what Paul said about circumcision. And, and so we would, it would result in a radical shift and it would be a, a historical shift because the monitoring and policing of beliefs is one of the ways that Protestant uh, denominations distinguish themselves from Catholics and from each other. And, and instead of fighting for market share among the shrinking number of people who identify as Christians, this would allow us to, to look to people in the world and say, if you are feeling a calling to become a more loving version of yourself, that's what we're about here. Mm. And if you want to get on that path, we, are, we have all the resources from Jesus and the gospels and the scriptures and the Christian tradition. And we want to bring all of those resources to help in that process. That's a very, very different understanding of what we're about. And that's, that's what I think is ahead. Uh, one, one way maybe for people to understand it is to say, imagine a church that required you to believe what all Christians believed before Copernicus and Galileo, that the earth is in the center. It might be a wonderful church with great music, but you would think, why would any group require me to mm. say that I believe something that I cannot in good faith say I believe? And that's, I think, how it feels for an awful lot of people when they look at at us. Brian's book is called Faith After Doubt, Why Your Beliefs Stopped Working and What to Do About That. The reality is, of course, that an awful lot of people do doubt. They doubt the reality of God. They doubt the truth of the Bible. They doubt the relevance of Christian faith and certainly the church for modern life. And a lot of people who are followers of Jesus struggle with doubts, not necessarily doubting the reality of God. Actually, it's amazing, isn't it, how many people say they have no problem believing God Their problem is believing the church. It's those propositions that are put to us, those things that we wonder just whether they are positioning us correctly to express the truth of Jesus' love in a world that has all its complexities that the 21st century brings. Faith after doubt suggests that doubt, rather than necessarily being the villain of the piece, has the potential when we bring it faithfully before God and look to him in it rather than leaning on our own understanding, it has the potential to take us deeper, further, higher, richer. And surely that's what all of us desire and that's what all of the world around us needs. Faith After Doubt is published by Hodder. Brian McLaren is its author. 
Brian, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. You've been listening to UCB Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond. You can find this as a podcast on the UCB Player app or where you download yours. And why not join me next week for another Life Issues? Good night.